Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Podcast, brought to you today by Yetter Farm Equipment. I'm Julia Gerlach, Executive Editor for No-Till Farmer. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Farm Equipment for sponsoring today's episode. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. The word Kernza, an amalgamation of the words Kernel and Kanza, in recognition of the Kanza Prairie Biological Station in Kansas, may not be familiar to many no-tillers yet, but chances are it will be before long. A dual-purpose perennial wheatgrass, the cool season crop that's been in development for more than 20 years, can be managed for both grazing and grain harvest, while the deep-grown roots provide soil health benefits. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by Yetter Farm Equipment, Contributing editor Dan Crummett speaks with plant biologist Lee DeHaan of the Land Institute, where the breeding of Kernza and other perennial crops has been underway since 2003. Listen in as Dan and Lee discuss the characteristics of Kernza, how to grow it, the potential of the developing markets, and more. We're here today with Dr. Lee DeHaan, a plant biologist with the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. For the past 20 years, Dr. DeHaan has been working on what might be termed a no-teller's dream come true, a cool season perennial small grain that affords winter grazing, plus a grain crop. Dr. DeHaan, tell us about the Land Institute and its mission, and how this alternative crop, Kernza, plays into that vision. Well, the Land Institute is a nonprofit organization based in Salina, Kansas, that's been working for decades now to develop more sustainable practices for agriculture. And the unique vision that we have is is inspired by our co-founder who looked at uh, native prairie grasses growing in the region and uh, was taken by the sustainability of, of grassland systems to hold the soil, prevent erosion that we see in our, our grain production systems. And, uh, you know, perennial grasses building soil quality we see that as we reestablish CRP to, to bring perennials back in and, and protect soils. The dream would be to have a, a system that could do that, but also provide food for humans. Uh, so we don't have this kind of trade-off between either growing grass or grain. Um, if we could grow a grass that would also produce grain for us. So that's the vision to, to have all those benefits of longer lived plants um, and be able to, to eat seed as well. That, so the, the job, it really becomes a plant breeding one to take those um, plants that are perennials and coax them into producing bigger seeds, more seeds, seeds that are held on the plant uh, that don't shatter on the ground, um, essentially doing domestication in some senses of uh, wild grasses and other uh, perennials that will allow them to become uh, grain crops that are also long-lived plants. Okay, and there is a, a release from the Land Institute called Kernza. I believe it's a, an intermediate wheatgrass that you've been working with. 
and it uh, it works into that vision. Can you tell us where it's being grown? Exactly. So the work on uh, identifying one perennial grass that might be a good candidate began in the 1980s uh, with the Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania. They picked intermediate wheatgrass, which at that time was a common forage grass being grown throughout the western half of the United States. They found that it had seed that would be good tasting. It could be used for food. Um, it had some properties of seed production that were real promising. So they began to select it uh, and then had a cooperative project with the United States Department of Agriculture in New York and worked on it until about 2000. After that point, I started working on it and have been working with it for the last 20 years as a plant breeder, increasing those traits that will make it into an acceptable grain crop. Over the past about eight years, it's, we've been doing experimental uh, movement of the crop onto farms to understand how it would fit into farming systems, benefits that farmers see, the, the uh, challenges that they have, and how we can address them with research, and then moving that grain into supply chains as well. How are we going to process it, uh, distribute it, what kind of products does it fit well into, um, so we're now entering the phase where there's uh, production in some regions throughout the country and uh, very small-scale commercialization efforts to make products out of that grain for the first time. So we have a perennial grain crop uh, being grown for human use, and uh, people can now purchase products uh, for the first time, so it's very exciting for us. What kind of uses is Kearns of Grain uh, being utilized for? Some of the first uh, items were actually uh, beer products because it was found that given these small seed lots we had being grown in many different places, it's hard to control the quality parameters on, on a grain that's going to go into, say, bread products. Um, so it was being used as kind of a replacement for barley or for wheat and a wheat beer. Several uh, beers released on a limited scale around the country. And then since then, it's moved into uh, noodle products pancake mixes, and just flour that people can take home and or buy and, and make a, a wide array of bread products out of. It uh, doesn't have the same gluten strength as wheat, so it's useful in a, about a 20% mix with a normal bread wheat to make a nice raised loaf, or you can make a, a dense rye bread type loaf um, if you want to use 100%. I understand there are a couple of major uh, players uh, that are purchasing and using uh, Kernza for some of their products. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, so the, the first company to really get excited about the idea of releasing a product was a company called Patagonia Provisions. People know Patagonia as a clothing company. Some years back, they started a, a branch of, of Patagonia called Patagonia Provisions aiming to bring uh, sustainable food products to market. And they were uh, very excited to, to try to bring the first currents of product to market. And they worked through a lot of learning and experience and interaction with, with farmers and in the whole supply chain. Um, it came out with a, a beer on the West Coast called Long Root Ale. The distribution of that one is expanding. They've since released a couple of more beers in some markets. They've also since released a, a noodle that um, can be purchased from their website. The other player that we began talking to some years back was General Mills. And uh, they have a Cascadian farm line of organic products that many people are familiar with. Uh, and they were most interested in introducing Kernza into uh, a product that would 
beyond that that that, that uh, Cascadian Farm uh, brand. And so recently they've come out with a cereal that contains Kernza and sold in limited markets, but that's expanding um, in the future, I think. Adoption of an alternative crop depends on many things, but profitability usually is top of the mind for a producer before they would uh, uh, try something like this. What kind of grain yield does uh, Kernza produce? Yeah, we have to kind of underscore the experimental nature of of the crop and the fact that most farmers are going to be on a steep uh, learning curve as they start to work with it. So encourage people to start slow and um, learn from your neighbors if at all possible or or have support from nearby research scientists and and others to help uh, in that process. But if things go well, farmers, and it depends on the area and and the the year and, and everything, but farmers are things are going well, get around 500 to 1,000 pounds per acre. That's the real upper end. And expectations should be for for unpredictability and learning and and see how it goes. Be ready for anything uh, the first few years you get into it. Prices are are difficult to summarize because there's really not, per se, a a market out there yet. Um, Farmers have to go into their growing with some idea of their their own arrangement about how their their grain's going to move into a processor and uh, hopefully a, an end product. So all of that's still coming together, and there's a lot of variability from region to region and whatever situation the farmer sees themselves in. But certainly our goal in inspiring or directing what's what's happening is that we hope that prices are of the nature that farmers will be able to get. A similar income from their current fields as as from other crops that they're they're working with at the time. Well, I know uh, from reading some of the material and uh, conversations we've had in the past, uh, you've already come a long way from the original genetics of of this line as far as yield is concerned. Where are your breeding efforts today, and in, in further boosting Kernza yields? Yeah, so I started into this slow, and it was not something that was my main work for the first 10 years. And then the number of resources here and then at programs around the country has really uh, exploded. So our progress is accelerating. But so far, yields uh, have doubled to tripled um, in the past 18 to 20 years. And uh, I'm looking at that, at least the the gains that we're going to be making, hopefully accelerating by applying um, the latest breeding technologies. We have a genome sequence for the, the species, and we can use genetically assisted breeding to accelerate the progress. Roughly, I'd say my goal would be around um, 100 pounds of yield increase through breeding on an annual basis. We're, we're, we're going to get there in terms of meeting the similar yields to annual wheat, for instance, uh, within, I hope, I hope within a couple of decades we're, we're going to have yields that are going to be very similar to wheat. Well, it's uh, the lower yields uh, don't always uh, preclude a product from being used. As most no-tillers know, yield isn't everything. Uh, give us an idea of how Kernza can be can benefit growers as far as economic sustainability in the long run, especially for those interested in forage and grain production. Kernza is a dual-purpose crop, so that would have to play into the economics of things, too. Yeah, exactly. So we really encourage farmers that are interested in Kernza to make sure that they have 
a way to utilize the forage from those fields. There's a couple of different points where that happens. Um, after the grain is harvested, the residues are generally larger than a, a wheat straw residue, and the, the quality is uh, somewhat better as well than a, a wheat straw residue, more like a, a low-quality uh, warm season grass hay in terms of its um, feed value. So uh, many of the farmers I've talked to are, have been in situations where that uh, big yield of a feed, especially for some uh, beef cattle, can be just uh, really what they need right in the middle of summer. Um, uh, supply of hay that they can bale. And secondly, um, the, the, being a perennial, it regrows pretty fast after harvest as long as there's some rainfall. So into the late fall and winter grazing and even early spring grazing is, are all possibilities. And those can work really well into to some systems, especially for getting into that spring period where uh, forage is really tight. Um, it can be uh, a great fit on a, on a system that way. Um, the overall economics can benefit from, from these forage side, but um, also from the input side. So uh, being able to have a crop that you can establish once and hopefully persist for uh, many years, uh, we anticipate that reducing the input cost the farmer by not having to purchase seed until the, the ground nears often. The fertilization that's required is typically less than we would expect for wheat. The large perennial root system is, is deep and it's there all year round, so there's less loss of nitrogen out of the system, which means it's used efficiently. Uh, what's applied tends to be used by the crop, so um, all those benefits and Finally, there's, there's a flexibility of having a, a grass crop that if you get into a drought situation uh, where forage is extremely valuable and it's needed, um, instead of taking grain that year, you can harvest or graze it. Um, that's been a you know, just a, a great thing for some of the farmers who are uh, getting into production of currency to have that flexibility to harvest grain if it's, if it's right for them or harvest the forage if it's the right thing to do. We'll get back to Dan Crummett and Dr. Lita Hahn in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment, for supporting today's episode. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Here are Dan Crummett and Lee DeHaan once more. We'd be remiss if we didn't uh, mention geographic areas of adaptation here. Where is Kearns uh, grown the most uh, productively or the, the most dependably, let's say? Yeah, we're, we're still exploring the answer to that question in terms of the best fit for the crop. Um, and it could be its production or its competition with other crops or the land value, et cetera. Uh, intermediate wheatgrass, which is what we're talking about here, was introduced to the United States from uh, high elevation regions of the Middle East, um, kind of 
mountainous areas of Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Turkey, um, and it was brought to uh, the western part of the United States, where also high elevation, lower rainfall areas, uh, typically where there's oh somewhere in the range of 12 to 20 inches of rain, it's considered to be a pretty good fit. Um, and as we've looked at it for grain, um, we've uh, brought it more into the grain producing regions further east. And um, some of that has to do with where the research is and where their interest is. So it's being grown. The most acres are really in the upper Midwest of states of Minnesota, Wisconsin. But the, the kind of natural fit of the crop from where it, where it comes from is, is best adapted, maybe areas that are either higher elevation or somewhat lower rainfall. Um, in Kansas here, we, we have, on average, uh, about 30 inches of rain, but it varies from 20 to, to it seems like about 20 to 30 these days. But in drier years, um, we're pushing the southern end of the of the adaptation, so we haven't found it to do that well moving, say, down to Oklahoma. So uh, where people are growing it right now tends to be down to Kansas and then west into Colorado and up to Montana, North Dakota, and um, east to Wisconsin, and then swell some over all the way to New York. Um, based on where there's been some some research being done and you know contacts with between farmers and, and researchers, a lot of uh, acres of potential there. You mentioned the uh, Kansas rainfall. I know Oklahoma, where I am, is about 32 inches, but I remember the night it came. Every crop has specific care and feeding recommendations, and what's Kearns alike for growers interested in trying it? What what does it take agronomically to establish a successful stand? Yeah, so being a grass, it's it's still a lot like establishing a forage grass. So farmers that have the equipment or experience in growing uh, perennial forages tends to be a good fit, or you know, even better, perennial grass seed producers really understand what it takes to grow perennial grass. The seed size has increased, but the, the seedling vigor is still more like a, a forage grass. So it has to be planted shallow and get a good rain after it's it's planted. Um, so a good seeder or a drill that can plant shallow. And typically in the fall, in most of the regions where people are growing, um, as we get into the far north or really high elevation, um, find that fall rainfall is not dependable and spring rainfall is a lot more dependable. So uh, grasses are typically only planted in the spring in those areas and that uh, tends to be the way that they want to plant currents into. Uh, if it is planted in the fall, we can expect the, the first harvest um, the following summer. It's going to be typically a little later maturing than winter wheat would be, uh, especially in Kansas, we'd be harvesting winter wheat at least a month earlier than we would expect to harvest the Kernza. And then uh, it can be harvested typically with standard equipment if you can cut it directly in some situations, especially organic production if there's weeds involved. Um, farmers might want to swap the, the stand first and then use a pickup header. And so that's a piece of equipment that some people aren't going to have normally these days and might be a, something to look into ha having available to give that flexibility. But once it's established, farmers are typically harvesting the forage and baling it, otherwise applying some sort of uh, fertility 
usually in the, the late fall, might be uh, in the organic systems, it's going to be some kind of manure. Um, in the conventional production, it can be nitrogen fertilizers um, over the fall winter period. Uh, but once it's established, it usually does a good well of excluding weeds, and mostly you're, you're managing it with a combine and a, and a forage harvester. What could you look at as far as stand longevity? Uh, what, what have you seen in your research and, and on some of the uh, experimental uh, uses on producer farms across the country? What, what are we looking at as far as stand longevity? Yeah, the, the stand persists really well. Uh, intermediate wheatgrass is a rhizomatous perennial grass. Uh, what was learned in its introduction to the uh, U.S. rangelands was that it is susceptible to overgrazing. So if it's harvested too frequently, it does um, get excluded pretty quickly. So it has to be managed carefully without too much um, overgrazing or overcutting of it. But in a system like we're using of, of cutting mostly the, for the grain, um, it's going to persist really well. Uh, but the issue has been maintaining the yield of grain for uh, many years. So especially in areas where there's more rainfall and, and further to the, the east, uh, cooler temperatures and, and good rainfall of, say, the corn soybean belt, uh, people see a pretty rapid decline in grain yield just over a three-year period. So at that point, they're looking at either going to harvesting it as a, a hay crop for several years um, or now experimentally looking at ways to renovate that stand and get it to be productive again. Uh, we see less rapid decline in areas where uh, it's probably more stressful growing conditions. Um, so it's a bit of an open question about how long is the stand going to last. I, I know right. Uh, intermediate wheatgrass grass seed growers um, typically expect a five to eight year uh, productive stand of, of seed. Uh, so far, growers that are trying to kind of manage it like a forage grass and taking grain harvest from it uh, haven't been able to manage for that good of a stand longevity of stand longevity is not the problem of of a sustained grain yield uh, has, has been a, a tricky bit, but We've got stands here at the Atlantis. I've been here for 20 years now that are still strong. Um, so the, the grass is persisting great. It's a matter of managing it for sustained grain production. On a, another note, as far as establishment, how would this fit? How would a grower maybe in the upper Midwest look at uh, working this into a rotation around uh, traditional uh, row crops and such? Yeah, so it, finding that right place to plant it is a bit tricky, <clears throat> especially as we found planting earlier in the fall is, is beneficial. So typically we've seen the, a real benefit to planting by August, uh, later August um, in the upper Midwest, and it's hard to have a corn or soybean crop removed by that point. So it fits well going into if you had corn for silage or if you had oats, it can fit in, or a, a spring wheat, spring planted small grains can uh, be a good fit to remove something on time and get the kerns established in the earlier fall instead of later fall. That's kind of the tricky piece there to, to find a way to um, get it in on time and not have to 
plant after corn has been harvested, for instance. Um, farmers who are who are planting are, are having a kind of a flexible system where they grow something maybe just beside corn or soybeans, or they plant a really early soybean that they might harvest early and then no-till the seed directly into that might work out in some cases. I've seen it work. Well, you have uh, considerable experience with, with Kernza. I understand that uh, the Land Institute's also working with other perennial crops. What might be in the pipeline there? Yeah, we, we're excited kind of to bring this idea of perennial grain crops worldwide. One of the most advanced and exciting pieces there is a perennial rice in, in China has been uh, quite a success already. We've been supporting and collaborating with that program for over 10 years now. And farmers are growing perennial rice in a in a particular region, and it's that production's expanding every year. I think we're in, into the thousands of hectares of perennial rice production. For the United States, we have programs here at the Land Institute involving a perennial wheat that similar to the Kernza, but it's more like wheat, so we're crossing the perennial grasses with wheat. And that program has the you know the end goal of something that's going to look more like wheat and have a grain that's more the size of wheat. The challenge has been the getting the chromosomes to work nicely with each other when you're you're crossing two species that are quite different. But we're, we're looking for a breakthrough coming um, in the years ahead where that, that could be a viable crop um, in the United States. Also, perennial grain sorghum uh, is something we've worked at, uh, worked on here for over 20 years. It's uh, coming along well. It's it, easier to get it to be a, a good perennial further south. And um, we're most enthusiastic about its near-term use in uh, in Africa, where sorghum uh, came from originally, to to bring uh, perennial grain sorghum there to help reduce erosion and uh, bring greater sustainability to uh, agricultural production in, in Africa and other regions, uh, tropical, and then moving the crop as well further north. Currently, our program is based out of Georgia, and it's a pretty Strong perennial in, in Georgia, um, so there's there's exciting developments on that crop. We're also working on a perennial sunflower relative that was a native plant in uh, the United States, uh, North America, and uh, we've been selecting it for greater seed size and seed production. Uh, some work is going on uh, in collaboration with other universities, such as the University of Minnesota, to work on the genetics of the species, genome sequencing it, and accelerating some of the breeding, working on disease resistance and pest resistance um, has been important. With the native species, there tend to be a lot of uh, things living here already that like to eat the plant. So um, disease resistance is a really important, uh, and pest resistance, uh, very important on that uh, development. Uh, on the legume side, uh, we're looking at legumes that could be grown uh, just as an intercropped uh, forage, such as uh, you know alfalfa grown between rows of kernza, um, increasing the the forage yield, the forage quality of the whole system, and uh, additionally providing nitrogen fixation into that system. Um, there's some evidence that mixing a grass and a legume can really help to do the the things that for the soil that we're most interested in perennial crops for improving the soil carbon, um, the the structure of the soil, the water infiltration into the soil, and 
providing a measurable increase in uh, soil carbon sequestration, which some groups are interested in paying farmers to sequester atmospheric carbon into the soil. So uh, that could be a, a, an economic benefit to the whole system by uh, providing some numbers uh, to groups that are um, wanting to pay for carbon sequestration offset. And finally, Sainfoin, which is kind of a relative of alfalfa, um, already has a fair bit of production in the U.S., uh, northern uh, U.S. for um, forages and, and seed production for that use. Um, we're interested in exploring the use of Sainfoin seed for use as a human food. And uh, there's, there's good potential there, but there's a basic research that needs to be done on understanding the nutritive value and ensuring that it's a, a healthy food product um, before we can bring that one to market. But the the yields and the, the seed size of, of same point are very exciting. So plenty of plenty of those, those ideas, but plenty more as well um, that could be worked on. It's just a matter of uh, getting to them, getting to the resources to explore them, and, and working with hopefully researchers uh, around the world to to develop new perennial crops. Uh, very promising, particularly in the age of growing interest in regenerative agriculture. Exactly. Yes. For for growers who are interested in in your project, uh, the work of the Land Institute, and and about Kernza, uh, where where do they go for more information? The easiest place to learn about Kernza is just at kernza.org. We have a nice uh, website. There's a a link there for producers that are interested to learn more. Um, contact information right there for uh, learning more and uh, to learn about some of our other crops and the work we do. Uh, we have our Land Institute website, which is landinstitute.org, and uh, we have some information there about all of all of our ongoing work. And uh, uh, if people are in the, the area, we invite them to investigate stopping in for a, a tour that we offer at, um, usually on Fridays, um, the availability of a, of a tour of our work here. Okay, very good. Well, thank you, Dr. DeHaan, for your time and conversation, and I uh, look forward to working with you more in the future. All right, thank you very much. Thanks to Dan Crummett and Dr. Lee DeHaan of the Land Institute for this discussion about this no-tiller's dream come true with dual-purpose intermediate wheatgrass Kernza. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at Nettle Farmer, I'm Julia Gerlach. Thanks for tuning in.